La Mission Radio Libertaire. La Mission Radio Libertaire. La Mission Libertaire. La Mission Radio 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 Libertaire. Dr. Stupid, with your host, Dr. Stupid. Hello, welcome to La Mission Radio Libertaire. I am Beaner. Uh, my pronouns are Borg and Continuum, uh, but I'm comfortable being called any pronouns you so desire. So she, he, they, uh, and her, him, them are all fine because I know it's kind of silly to remember the ones that I have chosen. Um, today on the podcast, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Um, there's no interview guest today, and I'm here by myself. Um, and we're talking about something that is extremely, uh, extremely pertin- pertinent to the current situation that everybody in the world is in, because... We have found through this worldwide pandemic that um, the systems of capital are not going to save anybody and they are very, very specifically there to only protect private property and specifically the private property of the ruling classes. Um, And so uh, I thought maybe today would be the time that we should talk about crime. Um, in this situation where everybody has less money than they should to survive, or not everybody, but a a very, very large amount of people have less money to survive than they need. A lot of people are facing evictions, and um, the estimations for people actually dying of hunger um, are growing higher and higher. And this is not just in the developing world. This is also in the post-industrialized first world nations. Um, So uh, first, I think I'm going to talk about a little bit of the history of um, crime and criminality uh, in anarchist theory. And uh, then I'll probably talk about a couple different examples, a more classic example 
Um, and a newer example, um, both of whom were able to buck the system, as it were, and um, get away with it. So, um, I'm going to use a lot of different terms sort of interchangeably in this podcast, um, but I'm going to explain the actual differences right now. Uh, What I'm mostly talking about here is what I'm going to term extractionary or extractive activism. It's basically the act of taking resources, um, whether that be actual capital such as cash or uh, that is food or um, tools or anything like that, um, taking it out of the system from the hands of uh, who has it to be used by the people, uh, vague, vaguely, you know, everybody. Um, but there are other names for doing this. Um, it comes from a particular sort of string of anarchist theoretical thought that was from the late 1800s. Um, uh, if you know much about anarchism, you'll know that the late 1800s to the early 1900s is kind of like a very explosive um, kind of uh, super height of the popularity of anarchism time. And there were theorists who um, basically said, hey, wait a minute, we don't believe in the state. Uh, we don't believe in their laws. We know that they're only there to protect uh, certain people and to screw over other people. Um, why don't we have a um, theoretical system for flouting those laws? Um, and what they came up with was um, a moral argument for what they termed individual reclamation. So basically, um, these anarchists who were collectivist anarchists said, um, the laws are immoral, people are hungry, you should be allowed to steal food to feed people. Now, I think we can all kind of agree with that. Um, They also said, you should be able to rob banks, though, and you should be able to... um, kidnap people and you should be able to do all kinds of different stuff that got money for your cause or for to support people. Um, Now, where you draw the moral line obviously is different for every single person. Um, But the very basic uh, tenet of anarchism is that you respect other people's individual autonomy. So um, a lot of anarchists were sort of against things like kidnappings and bank robbings because of who they might hurt. But other anarchists also argued that, um, for in, in the, in the instance of, uh, bank robberies, um, people who were working for oppressive, um, companies while to some degree forced to do that by living within the system of capital, they still chose to work at this, particular oppressive company. And so they were um, okay targets. I'm not going to come down on any particular moral side on this one. I think that is a decision that each person needs to sort of make themselves. But um, there was another um, string of uh, criminality. Um, And this is one that has popped up quite a lot on the internet uh, with the resurgence of 
um, anarchism and very specifically individualist anarchism or egoism. Um, so this is called illegalism. Um, this was very specifically not related to the um, individual reclamation idea. Uh, it grew out of Max Stirner's um, egoist, individualist, anarchist um, ideology and theory. Uh, basically, this said that people, that there is no moral argument because there are no morals. And um, the fact that you want something makes it fine to go and take that thing. This is a boiling down to something very, very, very simple, but essentially that is the argument of, sorry, illegalism. Um, illegalism uh, is sort of sometimes argued to be more of a temperament than a uh, actual uh, anarchist theory. Um, usually uh, a lot of the collective anarchists um, would sort of argue that the only people who sort of declared themselves illegalists were basically people who didn't get along with others and were extremely selfish um, and were only anarchists because they basically uh, wanted to be, you know, low-level bullies in some way or another. This argument holds some water, um, but I think there's also um, value to be found within um, some forms of individualist or egoist uh, schools of thought. Um, there's always something to be gleaned from pretty much everything. Um, but let's go to the Wikipedia and we'll um, see if there's anything that we want to read there. Um, oh, okay. Here's a good one. So here's an example of um, famous illegal illegalists. Uh, Jules Bonneau and the Bonneau gang um, were notable uh, illegalists. They were a French criminal anarchist group that operated in France and Belgium uh, during the Belle Époque from 1911 to 1912. Um, they were uh, composed of individuals who identified with the emerging, emerging illegalist milieu. Um, the gang used cutting-edge technology, including automobiles and um, semi-automatic rifles, which were all new, um, that were not yet available to the French police. Um, they were originally referred by the press simply as the auto bandits, but they were later dubbed the Bonneau gang because um, Jules Bonneau actually gave an interview with a daily paper talking about why um, they did what they did. Uh, basically, they um, were associated with a, an, uh, a French illegalist anarchist magazine, and they um, had a crime spree for uh, basically a little bit over a year where they went um, around um, stealing, uh, I mean, committing robberies, automobile thefts, they shot policemen. Um, uh, and, uh, I believe they robbed banks as well. And all of this money was used to, um, uh, 
uh, fund various different anarchist uh, groups and papers and stuff like that. Um, they uh, had a pretty spectacular end um, where they had a shootout with the police and many of them were killed. Um, much like uh, many other responses to um, extractionary or extractive uh, activism, uh, later on, um, you will see that the state actually put way more money into catching these people than was stolen by them. Um, and this is because the ideological aspects of um, this sort of Robin Hood-esque um, idea are something that frightens the state greatly um, because the idea of um, not following laws that are agreed on by everybody in society because they are found to be wrong or immoral or you just don't care is um, what the people who are holding power fear the most. Um, our society is based on an agreement by everybody to um, follow particular rules, uh, unwritten and written rules. And um, the ideology of not doing that or not considering those rules valid is uh, the thing that most undermines um, the power of those in charge. So... In the example of the Bono gang, uh, <clears throat> politicians were concerned even, and they ended up um, increasing police funding by 800,000 francs first, um, and they um, gave uh, the possibility of, of a reward for the Bono gang um, multiple times. Eventually, uh, I believe it went up to... 100,000 francs for um, information that would lead to arrests um, of anybody from the gang. So, um, yeah. So that's a good example of the illegalists who were um, killed. Some of them were killed and some of them survived and were put on trial and then sentenced to uh, penal colonies. Um, I uh, one of the members of the gang um, said that they uh, would... Um, one of the members of the gang was sentenced to life in prison and committed suicide because they said they would not allow the state to um, control their lives. Um, all right. Um, so, moving on. Let's see. Let's talk about Lucio. Oh, whoops. Oh, Jesus, I closed that. The next time I see you, remind me not to talk to you, will you? Moving on, let's uh, talk about a non individualist, a collectivist anarchist um, who was uh, a extractionary or extractive activist. Um, this is a famous old-time one. Um, this is Lucio Ortubia. Um, and I'm just going to read you his basic uh, Wikipedia entry. Uh, Lucio Ortubia Jimenez 
was a Spanish anarchist known for his practice of expropriative anarchism. At times, compared to Robin Hood, Ortubia carried out bank robberies and forgeries throughout the 1960s and 70s. In the words of Albert uh, Boadella, Lucio is a Quixote that did not fight, fight against windmills, but against a true giant. Uh, Ortubia was born in Cascante, the fifth child in a very poor family. His father, a Carlist, was imprisoned and while in jail experienced a conversion to socialism. Um, Ortubia was recruited for military service. Him and his companions ransacked a warehouse belonging to their company and deserted. Um, fleeing to France in 1954. In Paris, he began work as a bricklayer, an occupation he continued with throughout his life. Additionally, he became involved with the young anarchists of the Fédération Anarchiste uh, and befriended André Breton and um, Albert Camus. Um, now, if you um, go to see um, any of the many documentaries about Urtubia, uh, there are quite a few. Um, there's a small, a short one that I will include a link in the description, but there's a much, 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 much longer one that's pretty amazing that I haven't been able to find on the internet recently. Um, but the way that he describes it is he uh, was extremely poor and um, ha could not find work because the, there was kind of a, uh, you know, pretty bad recession on at the time. And so he um, ended up deciding uh, that he would go for military service uh, because it was his only option, which is another problem that we find to be um, very, very common these days. Um, he, uh, while in military service, found that um, the officers uh, were extremely abusive and um, were constantly robbing the Spanish army um, and so he figured, why not take a piece himself? And um, I believe he met um, some people within his company that were um, anarchists who were smugglers. Um, now, in that time, um, the almost all of the smugglers who were... smuggling stuff across borders were mostly anarchists. Um, if you know your history, you will know that anarchism was a extremely popular um, ideological um, tendency um, in Spain for quite a long time. And um, so, uh, and, and they also had extremely strong anarchist syn syndicates, AKA unions. Um, and so uh, for the uh, job of a smuggler to be pretty much exclusively taken by anarchists is not really that weird. Um, so anyway, he, uh, him and his friends in his um, company stole a bunch of stuff from a warehouse. Um, and uh, they were getting away with it for a little while. And then he realized that he had been found out. And he decided to flee as a political prisoner to or a political refugee to France because at the time um Spain had the death penalty for theft from the government Spain, so um the way you hear him tell it uh when he got to France that's when he met met 
the quote-unquote anarchists, and he's talking about the uh, Federación Anarchista, okay, the Anarchist Federation, which was a pretty well-known French anarchist group and um, included a lot of famous artists and, and, um, and uh, philosophers and um, teachers and stuff like that. Um, Let's move on with the Wikipedia thing. Soon after moving to Paris, Utopia was asked to hide a member of the Maquis, Spanish guerrillas who opposed Franco from exile in his house. The refugee turned out to be the fabled Francesc Sabat Lopart. I can't fucking pronounce that. Um, he stayed with Utopia for several years until his death. Um, so I think that um, this was a lot of the uh, education that... Um, he got was from uh, various uh, anarchist revolutionaries, particularly insurrectionary anarchists, um, who he came in contact with. So, um, Sabate guided families and anarchists exiled in Toulouse, per Perpignan, and Paris, and members of the old Spanish CNT in Barcelona, Saragossa, Madrid, and Pamplona. Before the imprisonment of Sabate, halted these activities, Ortubia began to emulate his incursions into Spanish territory. Later, he undertook a series of robberies and holdups to attain, obtain funds for the revolutionary cause, accompanied by his inseparable Thompson machine gun, which he inherited after Sabate's death. So, we see Ortubia was taught about... Um, Stealing money to support the cause um, at the time that was uh, the attempt to stop the fascist Franco from um, retaining power in Spain, um, the uh, inherent uh, enemy of the anarchist is the fascist, um, and uh, so uh, that was a really important thing for pretty much every um, anarchist in Europe and even worldwide at the time. Um, Anyway, by this time, Ortubia's falsification of documents had begun and no guerrilla or exile left him without false papers. He united with other anarchist companions to forge currency in the 1960s. With this strategy, they financed numerous groups while attempting to destabilize the capitalist economy. With these activities in the heat of the Bay of Pigs invasion, Ortubia proposed to Simeon Rose, the ambassador of Cuba to France, uh, to destroy American interests in France using explosives. This offer was refused nevertheless. He then presented Che Guevara, the famous Cuban minister of industries and president of the Central Bank of Cuba, with a plan for a, the massive forgery of American do dollars. This proposal was likewise rejected, and Ortubia left the meeting somewhat disillusioned with the Cuban um, revolutionary government. Um, now, what you're not hearing in this uh, Wikipedia thing is that Ortubia and some of his friends were basically master forgers. Um, they had technology that at times was actually better than the technology that the um, printers of documents and uh, currency had. Um, he himself made printing plates for all kinds of extremely difficult things. And um, they got to be really, 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 really good where they could make passports, um, travel documents, um, you know, uh, money, checks, um, and yeah, dollars. They had actually um, 
figured out how to make dollars um, at the time and were basically ready to do it. And they pretty much uh, didn't do it because they got a little bit of um, back channel information that, um, you know, starting this was going to bring down the hammer and that people were pretty close to being able to capture them at that time. And so um, they put an end to that plan um, at the time. Anyway, moving on. The masterful blow that changed his life was a forgery of Citibank traveler's checks in 1977. The criminal undertaking included 8,000 copies of 25 checks worth $100 each and damaged the bank so severely that its stock price fell. The stolen money was used, as always, in the aid of guerrilla movements in Latin America, the Tupamaros, the Monteneros, etc., and in Europe. In spite of the audacity of the forgery, Urtubia was only sentenced to six months in jail thanks to an extrajudicial agreement with Citibank, which dropped the charges in exchange for Uturbia's printing plates. Um, now, this is a very uh, cleaned up version of what happened. Um, kind of what the amazing thing is about this story is that the Citibank Traveler's Checks forgeries were going on for a really long time and they had no way of catching them. And pretty much um, Citibank was freaking out and thought their entire business was going to collapse. And so when a the U.S. government um, helped Citibank, I believe it was a CIA or FBI agent who was brought uh, to buy checks from Ortobia, um, and they were able to arrest him. Um, pretty much he was able to make demands of Citibank uh, in exchange for giving them the printing plates uh, or his lawyer giving them the printing plates, um, which was amazing at the time because many people believed he was going to be put away forever. But basically he had the company, he had Citibank by the... Uh, the short and curlies by the cojones. And so he actually got not only his sentence reduced to six months, which he, I believe, had already served uh, being in jail um, awaiting trial, but he also forced Citibank to pay him and his cohorts a very large amount of money in exchange for the plates. Um, so basically he came out on top in that exchange and um you know the only thing that he lost was one thing that he was actually good at forging um okay let's move on Urtubia's life was a continuous adventure. He was targeted, targeted by five international orders, including the CIA. He prepared the kidnapping of the Nazi Klaus Barbie in Bolivia, collaborated in the flight of the leader of the Black Panthers, interceded in the kidnapping of Javier Ruperas, mediated in the case of Albert Boadella, and worked with the Movimiento Ibérico de Liberación, and later with the Groups d'Acción Revolucionaire Internacionaliste. Um, Urtubia continued to live in Paris until his death, which is the very sad part of this story. Um, Urtubia died last year in July of 2020. He was 89 years old 
And he remained a staunch insurrectionary anarchist all the way until his death. And he was very open and willing to talk to most anybody who um, wanted to learn about his history and his actions. Um, Urtubia is the sort of classical example of um, expropriative anarchism in an insurrectionary flavor because he did uh, bank robberies, hands-on robberies. He did um, forging and um, sort of uh, these classic things that um, all are able to fund under a capitalist system the fight against fascism and capitalism. I don't have anything to add to that. You are listening to a podcast under the La Mission Radio umbrella. You can find us and support us at patreon.com slash Pablo. That's patreon.com, J-O-I-N-P-A-B-L-O. Early access for patrons, plus special bonus episodes, and a whole lot more as we did not start as a podcast Patreon. Come and see us. Now, we're going to move on to a more modern version. So now we are going to talk about the more modern version of this extractionary anarchism. Uh, I wonder if anybody listening to this has heard of Phineas Fisher. Uh, Phineas Fisher was a hacker personality or the cover name of a hacker collective. The person first appeared in 2015. Um, Phineas Fisher linked a torrent on Twitter behind which all the trade secrets of the Italian company hacking team were hidden, including advertising materials such as flyers and promotional videos. Um, I'm reading from a translated version of the um, Wikipedia entry for Phineas Fisher, but basically Phineas Fisher started off as a pretty obviously um, security-minded and surveillance state uh, um, concerned um, insurrectionary anarchist, um, first hacking two very important companies that basically um, made spyware. Uh, before the hacking team hack, I believe, he ha- hacked um, a German-British company called Gamma group or Gamma Finn Fisher, which produced uh, an espionage software called Finn Fisher, which they were found to have sold to a number of um, authoritarian governments and um, which was predominantly being used to target journalists, um, um, political dissidents, um, any kind of... uh, um, opposition group to whatever government was in power um, uh, and and activists, uh, um, wh- whether they be um, insurrectionary and actually uh, what the state terms violent or whether they were completely um, pacifist uh, activists. Um, so uh, Phineas Fisher um, hacked both Finn Fisher and also this Italian company called Hacking Team, who themselves also were makers of spyware. Similar whole thing that they were very specifically um, making um, stuff that was used to spy on 
people that uh, it was essentially illegal to spy on. And um, they were selling their um, malware and their services to uh, not just authoritarian governments, but also police departments and other um, uh, state actors in the first world as well. Um, uh, and um, it was pretty funny because um, Phineas Fisher basically uh, put out uh, both Torrance and their own um, ASCII text zines where they explained the hacks um, and were trying to um, make it obvious that this was supposedly possible for anybody to do, uh, trying to bring back, as they were saying, the um, original sort of hacktivist uh, ideals of um, hacking against the powerful as opposed to for the powerful. Um, it was also quite funny because um, it was found that the way that they were able to get into the hacking team thing was through um, extremely weak passwords and the use of an old, not updated piece of internet-facing hardware, um, both of which were done by um, people who should have known better, a system administrator and a, uh, I believe, the owner or the president of the company, something like that. Uh, in one case, the password that was used to get in was a password with the A changed to a 4, um, which we all know is the safest password that you can ever use. Um, uh, um, after this, let's read the, a little bit more of the translated Wikipedia. Phineas Fisher appears again and again in connection with attacks on companies that enable surveillance and produce digital espionage or tools of repression. In an interview, Fisher also confesses to a digital bank robbery. With reference to a Chinese proverb, Fisher's hacking guide aims to, quote, give a person an exploit and he can gain access for a day, teach him to fish with a PH, and he will have access for all his life. This refers to, of course, phishing, um, which is a hacking term to sending um, sort of uh, mails that are able to trick a receiver into providing their credentials. Um, however, Fisher did not use special phishing me methods to hack the bank, but instead got into a sonic wall firewall. That is the internet facing hardware that I was saying before using a shell shock exploit. Um, for the non-technical among you, a shell shock exploit is something that is very, very common. Um, Fisher attracted attention in November 2019. Oh, you know what? Let's get to that a little bit later. I want to talk about some of the other things that Phineas Fisher has done along with hacking, hacking team and um, the Gamma Group. Um, Phineas Fisher was made aware of a lot of the <clears throat> extremely violent, um, illegal, and um, uh, terrible things that the Barcelona police force was doing to activists. Um, there was a scandal involving them going into a uh, place that a bunch of um, um, activists were sleeping and beating the living, sh ever-loving shit out of all these people. Why does and, this keep happening? Uh, 
I believe, uh, putting something like 25 people in the hospital. Uh, some people were so critically injured that they had, you know, uh, massive internal bleeding and uh, permanent damage to a lot of them. Um, so Phineas Fisher used this as their um, uh, inspiration to then go on and hack uh, one of the Barcelona police unions. And um, after hacking the Barcelona police union, Phineas Fisher found that one of the passwords that was used on the police union's website was also the password for Twitter. And so uh, Fisher um, took over the Barcelona um, police union's Twitter account, uh, posted massive amounts of pictures of uh, police uh, violence and repression and illegal things that they had done, and basically posted a shitload of links to information about how terrible this police department was. Um, the Barcelona police were absolutely enraged and pretty much went fucking apeshit. Um, they claimed that they had um, caught two people that were part of what they termed the Phineas Fisher group um, a few months later, but it was found almost immediately to be that they basically just uh, arrested people who had retweeted some of the information that had uh, been put out and wanted to try to pin it on them. Um, very luckily, those people were um, cleared of the charges that the police department tried to pin on them um, and were allowed to go free. Um, Eventually, the Barcelona Police Department had to admit that they had no fucking idea who Phineas Fisher was, and um, they have not been able to find any information since either. Uh, this is the same thing with the Italian Police Department, who at a at a certain time um, were claiming that Phineas Fisher was uh, was uh, known to be someone specific or known to be actually associated with. Um, Fancy Bear, a.k.a. the FSB, a.k.a. the Russian Intelligence Services. Um, but eventually they um, admitted that actually that was a total lie as well. They had no clue who this person was. Um, moving on, um, Phineas Fisher has in many uh, uh, statements, manifestos, uh, and interviews um, expressed very specifically a... Um, uh, love for the project of Rojava, which is the anarchist um, sort of uh, federated municipal feminist ecologist project in northeastern Syria um, and uh, has at times um, donated money from hacks and done hacking specifically to support Rojava. Um, another famous hack that didn't get really very much um, press at the time was Phineas F Fisher's hack of the AKP, which was the Turkish ruling party. This is the party of um, Erdogan. Um, and um, basically, Phineas Fisher uh, had hacked this and stolen a large treasure trove of emails and information to... Um, help Rojava because the Turkish 
government um, is very dead set on um, eliminating Rojava and actually basically uh, committing a genocide against the Kurds in that area. Um, so um, here's the crappy thing that happened. Uh, Phineas Fisher did this hack, had contacts in Rojava and um, approached the, the contacts, said, hey, I have all of this information from this hack. I'd like to give it to you, but you know you really need to go over it and figure out what stuff um, can or, or, or cannot be leaked, what stuff can or cannot be used, and um, do that carefully. The contact in Rojava said, yep, totally understood. Um, someone within the um, organization that um, Phineas Fisher was involved in um, then gave the stuff to WikiLeaks on the condition that WikiLeaks do not publish it. Um, now, WikiLeaks, of course, published it. Basically, the person from Java and Phineas Fisher said, hey, there's a lot of stuff in here that might be sensitive. We don't want to put anybody specifically in danger. You need to go over this before you um, uh, publish anything. And we're just giving you this information so that you can help us because you have a lot more experience in these kinds of large-scale leaks and how to sort of vet them. And WikiLeaks turned around and just released it. Um, this is... Uh, one of the things that um, I think over the course of researching and understanding WikiLeaks, you will understand that um, they do a lot of stuff that is probably only in their own best interest or in the interest of people who are currently um, funding stuff for them. Um, uh, while WikiLeaks has done a lot of good as well, uh, they are an organization that tends to have some pretty uh, shaky moral ground on a lot of occasions. Um, and now um, we're going to get to the last and most important hack that was made public, and that is the Cayman Islands Bank and Trust. So what we have here is Phineas Fisher doing the same thing as the old school extractionary anarchists robbing a bank. Um, there is no information released as to how much money was actually robbed over the course of the time that Phineas Fisher was in the Cayman Island Bank and Trust um, system. Um, but uh, they were able to use... Um, the SWIFT system, uh, which is, you know, a electronic bank um, transfer system uh, to transfer at least six figure sums um, away from the Cayman Island Bank and Trust. And they used this money um, to fund a lot of different um, revolutionary and uh, insurrectionary and non-insurrectionary positive um, uh, projects and 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 uh, um, groups. Uh, I believe there was proof that um, they transferred a hundred thousand euros to um, Rojava, and. Um, 
there is quite a few other um, groups and things that um, Fisher talked about um, giving money to. Again, the police were dumbfounded and were not <clears throat> able to figure out who it was um, because um, Phineas Fisher had extremely, extremely good operational security or OPSEC. Um, Fisher basically um, found a way to steal a very small number of Bitcoins from a United States citizen who um, ran a website selling Bitcoins um, and used these Bitcoins that were stolen to rent the hardware and servers and um, a number of other things that were uh, what was used then for the attacks. So basically... Um, Fisher put several layers between themselves and the actual uh, attack so that um, nobody was going to be able to figure out from the uh, real-world practical things that were necessary to pull off this attack who the person was. Um, the FBI did arrest this person that, the, that Fisher stole the uh, bitcoins from uh, the guy's name was John Devachi, I believe, and then they figured out almost immediately. Oh shit! This isn't the guy. This guy had bitcoins stolen from him. Um, Fisher once again put out a ASCII text uh, zine on the internet that anybody can read that describes exactly how they went about pulling off this hack. Um, with all of the technical details. Um, in interviews, Phineas Fisher has said very specifically that they want to um, show and attract people to doing this themselves, that um, uh, using the tools available to us to extract capital from the capitalist system and use it for good um, is... Uh, not only possible, but is um, extremely uh, easy. But if you at all have looked through these zines, you will find that in unless you are already super, super well-versed on this stuff, it is not that easy. And this person is pretty, 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 pretty damn smart. Um, I do think it would be possible for anybody to do it given um, a lot of training and um, it's something to think about if you are setting up a collective anarchist training camp. Um, but um, the most of the information in the time uh, has is not really um, applicable now anyway because a lot of this um, technical stuff changes pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, once... Things are published. Um, the uh, parties who have exploits in their systems immediately run to try to fix them. But um, the point was not that um, here's a how-to guide um, that will work every time. But the point was you can do this. You can get her done. And um, you all should get her done. And to that end, um, the last thing I'm going to talk about with Phineas Fisher is that... Um, well, here's how Wikipedia says. 
Fisher attracted attention in November of 2019 with an unusual bug bounty program. For every successful attack, depending on the public interest and the impact of the hack, as well as the associated effort, a premium should be paid to hackers. Phineas Fisher wants to create a counterbalance to government gratuities in order to protect civil society from security loopholes caused by so-called zero-day exploits. Um, To explain this a little bit, uh, basically, Phineas Fisher came out and said, I'm going to pay people between 10,000 and 100,000 uh, euros. I think it was euros. It might have been dollars um, to hack um, shitheads. Um, and this person uh, named very specifically the um, ecology destroying um, corporations in Latin America mining companies, oil companies, a um, whole bunch of stuff. Um, it, uh, Phineas Fisher talked about uh, private armies such as Blackwater, talked about Halliburton, which is an energy company but is known to be a lot more than that, um, talked about armies and governments and other things. Um, Phineas Fisher has um, claimed to have paid one bug bounty at least so far, which is um, the attack on the Chilean military that uh, leaked a bunch of stuff that led to scandal. Um, I believe they're called the Milli um, hacks, uh, but uh, I'll put a link to that kind of stuff in the description if I can find it. Um, But basically, Phineas Fisher is trying to uh, restart the sort of uh, heyday of hacktivism. Um, nobody knows who Phineas Fisher is. There is one article um, or interview with CrimeThink that um, sort of uh, hints at Phineas Fisher being a woman um, uh, and wanting more women to be um, involved in this uh undertaking um because unfortunately infosec and uh hacking and stuff like that is largely these days a boys club despite the early days of it being very very much um um a field uh where women were quite common and 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 really a big part of the development of it um there is also some um some stuff that points towards um, Fisher being from Latin America. Um, and uh, w- one of those being that the uh, zines are all initially published in Spanish. And it is not um, Hispaniol in Spanish. It is more a Latin American version of Spanish. Um, now, I don't know if either of those things are actually true at all because this person seems incredibly smart and um, using knowing that um, any information that they put out in the public domain can be used to sort of figure out who they are or track them. So um, being a woman or being from Latin America could actually just be a, um, a misdirect, a red herring, as it were. But... Who cares? The important thing is that Phineas Fisher is doing these things and that these things are possible in our day and age. And not only are they possible, but they're actually kind of easier than a lot of the um, more dangerous physically and uh, mentally and for your um, you know, freedom and uh, sanity 
um, like robbing banks. So um, there's one funny thing that Fisher said in an interview that I thought was quite um, telling, and that's that basically there's some really, really easy things that you can do that the organized criminal gangs have figured out um, uh, as as money makers um, uh, through the internet. And these are basically fraud, uh, you know, credit card scams and um, all kinds of other forms of fraud. Um, and uh, Fisher was basically saying, look, there's extremely dumb people in these groups who are making hundreds of thousands of um, dollars um, doing these scams and they're not doing it for good and you could be doing this and doing it to support the um, community that you're a part of or or the international worldwide community of um, the fight against both capitalism and fascism. Ideology. Um, and I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I think the takeaway, um, you know, so what now? Question the question, what now? Yeah, so the question, what now? Um, I guess uh, the answer is um, learn about this stuff. Um you know, uh, for legal reasons, this podcast does not recommend anything uh, that is against the law. Uh, but uh, there is nothing wrong with learning exactly how to commit um, fraud and how money would be moved and how who might need it and all of those other things. Um, just like it should not be... Uh, just like you should not hesitate to steal a, a, a loaf of bread to feed your starving family, um, one should not hesitate in thinking that it is a moral thing to steal large amounts of money from banks and then distribute it to projects that are trying to make the world a better place and lead to the emancipation of all people. Um, uh, if you need some inspiration f for insurrectionary anarchism and to um, understand how being an insurrectionary anarchist can be a not negative and not nihilistic and not absolutely awful um, thing, um, I would suggest reading um, the very famous insurrectionary anarchist uh, Alfredo Bonanno, a.k.a. Freddie Bananas, um, he has a very famous, um, pamphlet called Armed Joy, which is pretty much the sort of, um, start to, uh, to a sort of, uh, uh, road down a joyful, positive, and, um, exciting road of insurrection. Um... I think that's all that we're going to leave you with this time. Um, thank you very much for listening to La Mission Radio Libertaire. The next one will be back to being an interview. 
Um, I'm not sure who the guest will be, um, but there are a number of people that I've talked to. Uh, some of the potential subjects are the black and Jewish history of cooperation, specifically in socialism and anarchism or other radicalist um, or other radical tendencies. Uh, I potentially will be talking to two old friends of mine in the Bay Area who are both um, radical educators uh, and talking about education. Um, and there's, oh, you know, actually, I mean, I've, I, I have a million really great interviews lined up for Radio Libertaire. Um, and also, potentially in the future, I hope that we'll get around to doing some of the more funny things for Radio Libertaire. Like, for instance, our um, sketch show uh, ideas, um, like uh, Thanksgiving Dinner at the Cage House, which is uh, what if John Cage... Luke Cage, Nicolas Cage, all the Cages were actually one family. Hilarity ensues. All right, thanks again, and um, have a great time. And uh, go and uh, steal a candy bar from me. Good night. You are listening to a podcast under the La Mission Radio umbrella. You can find us and support us at patreon.com slash join Pablo. That's patreon.com, J-O-I-N-P-A-B-L-O. Early access for patrons, plus special bonus episodes, and a whole lot more as we did not start as a podcast Patreon. Come and see us.